I'm Anna Webb. Welcome to A Dog's Life. We've just rushed back from the Hackney Marshes after a blustery walk. By we, I mean me and Mr Binks. I should just clarify that uh, Mr Binks isn't my boyfriend. He is my English toy terrier and Prudence is my miniature bull terrier. We're all very excited because we're about to interview Bill Lambert, who is the head of health and welfare at the Kennel Club. We're going to be talking about the unprecedented demand for puppies through lockdown. At the beginning, it was Lou Rolls, and now we've run out of puppies. Yeah, so Bill, thank you so much for joining me on A Dog's Life. You're very welcome, and nice to speak to you again, Anna. I know, it seems like ages, like a lifetime since I saw you last, because that was at Crufts. It was indeed, and of course that was one of the last big events that actually took place uh, before we had lockdown. And I don't think uh, any of us at that time could have envisaged what was to come. I know, I know, and part of that actually has been that dogs have been hitting the top headlines really um, for the last hundred days, um, in some ways good and in some ways not so good, wouldn't you agree? That's right. I think um, certainly if we go back to Crufts, we, we, we'd started all our precautions at that time, getting people and we, we it was a serious decision whether Crufts went ahead and we put lots of extra additional precautions in at Crufts. And I know that that, that was our first exposure to, to what was going to come. But yes, I think what's happened since has been unprecedented. And I think some of the effects that we've seen since the lockdown have really caught us by everybody by surprise, quite frankly. Yes, not least, I think that we're the lucky ones because we're dog owners. You know, we were dog owners before lockdown. And I think we've been the, the ones that, you know, have had the benefit of dogs by our side. And I think that has inspired so many people now <laughs> to have the idea of taking on a puppy. Because as we're moving out of lockdown, We've run out, haven't we, Bill, of puppies. Before we'd run out of loo roll and now we've run out of puppies. What do you make of all this? So I think there have been incredible, whereas the COVID situation is a terrible situation for a lot of people. And I can't imagine what it's been like for people who perhaps live in London in a 16th story flat with having children and no company of a dog. It, this situation must be awful for them. But for people like myself, we've actually benefited. I'm able to work from home as are a lot of the Kennel Club staff. And of course, we have dogs at home and our dogs are getting huge benefit from having us here. They're getting twice as many walks as they would have done before. So in many ways, life has improved for our dogs. But I can fully understand why people who haven't previously had a dog now have more time on their hands. They are at home and they think now perhaps is the ideal time to have a dog. But the thing is, Bill, isn't it? You know, a dog is for life, not just for lockdown. <laughs> You're, you're absolutely right. And, and there is a potential welfare crisis looming. Now, what we don't know at this stage is how many people are going to be able to continue to work from home beyond lockdown. We've had estimates of anything between 20 and 40 percent being able to work from home long term. 
But what we are really worried about is those people who have been thrust into a situation where they are at home and they are now making an instant decision, oh, now I should get a dog without thinking of the implications past lockdown. Apart from the fact that dogs like company and like having us around, um, there are the long-term consequences of things like separation anxiety. For example, anyone getting a puppy now, a puppy needs, lot, lot, needs lots of time and someone around really for the huge part of its, the first part of its life, certainly. And dogs who don't have, who, who can suddenly their situation can change, their routine can change, dogs love routine. So if they go from a situation where they've got people around all day and suddenly that person isn't there, that's when problems really do start. Dogs can suffer from what we call separation anxiety. Uh, they get very lonely, they get distressed, and that's when they can start destroying the home uh, behavior changes, all sorts of things can happen. So that is potentially what we are facing and what really concerns us. Yeah, and also, I guess, you know, um, part of the problem with this one-click society that we're living in is that puppies can be purchased, you know, I believe totally wrongly, literally like you might buy a hoover on the internet. And, you know, people don't think it through and perhaps don't realise the work that a puppy, you know, involves. Well, the odd thing is, our advice, Kennel Club advice, hasn't really changed. Our advice is always... Anyone that's considering a dog should do their research first. So the research starts with considering what sort of breed you might want to get. Uh, and then, of course, research what breed you're going to get your dog from. Now, that, that advice hasn't changed, but it's suddenly become more acute because the amount of research that you do at an early stage has a really di a direct implication, direct um, effect on the learned long-term circumstances. Yes, we are really worried. Of course, we always see... Um, Christmas time is, is a peak for people getting dogs and then relinquishing them after Christmas because they can't cope. And we are worried that we're going to see a, almost a magnification of that situation with so many people wanting dogs at the moment. The demand that we're seeing is absolutely unprecedented. I've certainly seen nothing like it in all the years that I've worked from, for the Kennel Club. So we, when you have a massive demand, you, you can't suddenly produce a lot of puppies to fill that demand. So puppies become effectively scarce. The desperation amongst people to get a dog whilst they can grows. But of course, the long-term consequences are that, as you rightly say, that the impact is going to be possibly on the rescues. We run breed rescue. So most pedigree breeds have a breed rescue attached to it so that people can actually go and uh, get a dog of the type of the breed that they want. Uh, but those dogs are all in rescue for one reason or another. And we are worried that these rescues are going to become completely overwhelmed when we get to back to a normal situation where people have to return to work and suddenly the dog does not, have, they don't have the time to spend with the dog that they currently have. The dog has problems and then they have to relinquish the dog and, and fight it. the dog has to be found a new home. And the other thing that's been happening is sort of to fulfill this demand, you know, unscrupulous breeders are flooding the internet with puppies that have in some cases traveled a very long way from abroad and been brought in sometimes illegally with counterfeit paperwork to again fulfill this demand so what we've seen in the last couple of days is this petition which i'm sure you've seen bill that's uh, you know heading to 100,000 signatures already in just 3 3 or 4 days where people are wanting us to ban 
puppy imports. But rather than banning imports, wouldn't a more sensible route be to change the passport scheme back to how it was before 2012, when it would mean that a puppy would be one before it could come into the UK? No, Anna, you, you touch on so many issues there, and, and they're all, <laughs> they really are all interconnected. So let's, let's start from the beginning. The, 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 the issues start when you have a, a mismatch between supply and demand. So now we have a situation currently where you have a huge demand for dogs that can't be fulfilled by the breeders in the UK. Now, because of that, then people start to look overseas and start to perhaps take less care when they think about getting a dog. They're so desperate to get a dog and overseas seems like a good opportunity. Now, there's a number of issues even with that in itself, even if the transport can be arranged and the dog can be trans transported safely, often the welfare conditions in other countries are not the same as they are in the UK. We do have fundamental welfare laws. They are sometimes broken, we know, but we do have a society that accepts that animal welfare is a priority. Some countries do not have those same priorities. So we do have situations that there are dogs and puppies born in really awful circumstances. They're then taken away from, from their mother at an early age, transported into the UK, and so their start in life, which will have an effect for the rest of their life, is, is awful. So we are seeing this demand for overseas puppies uh, because of the shortage of, of puppies available in the UK. Now, I think you're, I, I would, the, the, the petition that you refer to, I think we would support in many ways and, and getting back to a situation where puppies are slightly older when they're brought into the UK. One of the issues is, is that puppies are very cute when they are six to eight to even 10 weeks of age. So the importers, the people that deal in dogs, um, they want to get puppies into the country as early as they possibly can so that they are cuter and that they can sell more easily. Now, we don't like to think of puppies being a commodity and they're not. They're a living, breathing thing. And buying a puppy is uh, an emotional purchase. It's not like buying something else that may have risen in, in price, like toilet rolls, for example. So we, we, it, it is a totally different situation. So the, the point is that if we can, I think there is enormous merit in raising the age that puppies can be brought into the UK. Currently, if they're brought into the UK legally, then they, they would have to be 12 to 16 weeks of age so that they've had the right rabies inoculations, et cetera. But we know that people are smuggling in puppies under that age because of this cute factor. Certainly a customs official, it's far easier for them to look at a dog and make a judgment that the puppy is not six months old, but it's much, it becomes much more difficult to try and discern whether a puppy is 16 weeks old or 20 weeks old. So certainly that would improve the situation, but it's got to go alongside enforcement. So if we brought in um, regulations that you couldn't bring a puppy into a certain age, and, and I'm saying six months would seem to be an age when a puppy is robust, it can have had the right inoculations. That's got to be sorted by good enforcement so that these evil smugglers can actually be detected and we can stop that evil trade. Yes, and of course, you know, you've got Lucy's Law now, which um, has become legislation in England during lockdown. So, of course, perhaps it hasn't been a priority to be talked about um, as it might have been. Um, how do you think Lucy's Law is really going to stop third party sales? 
Yeah, we are incredibly supportive of Lucy's Law. We were behind it right from the beginning, and we were also we were we were um, campaigning for the the stopping of selling of puppies in in pet shops for many many years. So Lucy's Law is a is a great piece of legislation. However, it was really unfortunate that right when Lucy's Law was brought in, which was right at the beginning of lockdown, it did mean that the the one piece of really important information that came out of Lucy's Law was that people should only buy a puppy where they can see it interacting with its mother. The moment we had lockdown, of course, that was not possible because we, uh, puppy bars could not visit breeders' houses. So suddenly we had to say, okay, how are we going to achieve this without the people going to people's to, to, to breeders' houses? And of course, people have started to make use of um, modern technology, for instance, um, video technology to try and breach that gap between actually physically seeing the puppy and being able to see the puppy react with its mother. Now, as we get through the lockdown and the restrictions start to be relaxed, we can, of course, go back to the fact that or go, go back to the, the, the rule that people can actually go and see the puppy and should only buy where they can see the puppy. And, and that has a number of effects because it does mean that people can make a judgment about the conditions that the dogs are kept in our advice always is if anyone is unsure about buying a puppy then they should think and go elsewhere because if they if they have concerns there are red flags shown about the conditions of where the puppy is or they have any concerns about the temperament of the mother etc then they really should walk away but we recognize that's very difficult to do uh, because as i said earlier it is an emotional purchase it is a fundamentally good piece of legislation and it and it can work but it is going to require enforcement and i think it's like all laws there is no point in having a law there if it is not enforced fully yeah um something i always suggest to people wanting a puppy i always suggest you know either adopt um you know go to a breed specific rescue talk to the people there or go to the kennel club website to your assured breeders scheme that's absolutely right, and that is good advice. The the a good breeder uh, buying, as I as I said earlier, it, buying a puppy is an emotional purchase. It's not like buying any other uh, anything else that you buy. Now, um, we, unfortunately, the sale of Goods Act says that it treats a puppy exactly the same way it does as a as a washing machine or a fridge freezer. So there are some protections in law, but if you go to a good breeder who really cares about their dogs, um, the sale is is it's one, only one part of the process. It's much more like adopting a child. A good breeder will ask all sorts of questions about your ability to be able to look after that puppy well and give it a good home. There's this phrase that we often use, you know, forever home. A good breeder wants every puppy they sell to go to its forever home. So quite frankly, um, the purchase price, the amount that they actually sell the puppy for is largely immaterial when considered against the home that the puppy is going to and because of that good breeders will ask lots of questions and they will only sell a puppy once they're sure it can be provided with a good home of course one of the effects of the, the current situation and as you mentioned right at the beginning of this interview we're seeing sales on the internet now uh, of puppies um, this has opened the door for all sorts of poor practices and for the bad breeders and, and for puppy dealers to actually um, try and fill that gap um, Lucy's law will go a long way to actually improving that situation, providing it is enforced.
Do you think another aspect could be um, that some people in recent years, you know, I'm talking about the last decade, um, have gone off pedigree dogs for, you know, um, another way of putting it. And people think that, you know, the only dog to get is a cockapoo. You know, that's an interesting point. And, and I, I've seen lots of lots of all sorts of crossbreeds that can make wonderful pets. But one of the things that, that, for example, one of the white reasons I think that kennel club registration in itself is a good thing is because it provides transparency. Now, we have lots of information available on the kennel club website. You can, you can look at where, how a dog's been bred. You can look up all its health records. You can only have a kennel club dog's registered name. You can look at its history and its record and really tell a lot about that dog. Um, Largely, a lot of the, the what we call designer crossbreeds, they tend not to be registered. So that history and that transparency is, is not actually there. Um, of course, there is also the, the great thing about pedigree dogs, of course, is, is predictability. Um, I should immediately say that any dog can be registered with a kennel club. We have the, the ability for any dog to be registered with us, but it tends to be pedigree breeds that have been established over a long period of time that are registered. And that brings with it all sorts of advantages of this transparency of the whole process of breeding dogs. Um, and it aids, it really gives you a much better idea of what you're getting when you buy a puppy. I mentioned predictability. Of course, we can, we have years, literally, the kennel club has been going since 1873. So we have records back literally that far on our dogs. And so we know if somebody buys a Labrador, we can not only trace, trace its lineage, we can trace its health history. And with a well-established breed, we can tell you how long, how big it's going to get, how much food it's going to need, um, how long, how much exercise it needs. You don't get that predictability necessarily with crossbreeds. So, so there are huge advantages, um, but actually, as I said, the Kennel Club is here for all dogs. And I'm very aware that some of these designer breeds have become very popular and can make lovely pets. Yes, but it's um, that kind of misnomer for me is that, um, you know, that the crossbreeds will be healthier. There's this myth, I think, that, you know, you get a pedigree and you're going to be at the vets every day and it's going to cost a fortune. But uh, why is that actually not right and not correct, Bill? Well, the fact of the matter is we have lots of information on pedigree dogs. We, we know what health conditions they get. We know what, what they can, uh, what conditions and what hereditary disease they can be affected by. The, the designer crossbreeds that, that have not been going that long. And so therefore uh, they, have, they don't have that database. So we're a little bit of a hostage to fortune. We actually collect all this information. We publish all this information. And so it's very easy to say, okay, we know that these these certain breeds suffer from certain diseases. Other breed, other crosses do, of course, suffer from conditions and diseases, but we just don't have the information on it. So let's use the example of a, a very well-known condition, a condition called hip dysplasia. We have a scheme that's been developed for a number of breeds where breeders can actually test their breeding stock and give a much better predictability of whether their dogs will suffer from hip dysplasia or hip disease in later life. Um, if a dog that is a healthy dog, a dog that has a good score and it is actually um, used in a breeding program, may not necessarily be available to the people who want to breed crossbreeds. And so I, there is some evidence that the, the population, the breeding population, certainly has a better health testing record. 
but of course that actually all that does is that people outside our influence as people who who don't perhaps care about health are able to do to breed from the the effectively more or less healthy animals and they are going to continue to produce those problems so for example if we if you have a um, a, a pedigree dog, uh, let's, let's use the example of a cockapoo, for example. If you have a cocker spaniel that has a hereditary disease um, and you mate it to a poodle, those diseases don't necessarily go away. Um, and there are many eye conditions that, that exist in, in crossbreeds and in pedigree dogs as well. So there are, you are getting, there's no guarantee, of course there's no guarantee when you buy a dog of its health status. But if you know what you're dealing with, if you buy a dog that's from health-tested parents, you've got a far better, um, far better chance of buying a dog that is healthy and is going to live a long and happy life. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, the Animal Health Trust. Um, you work very closely with them. And some of the... Um tests now for conditions that have moved on with science are, are fantastic not least of course for the breed of dog <laughs> that you own <laughs> and I own <laughs> for better or for worse <laughs> the miniature bull terrier that when I had my first miniature bull terrier Molly you know there was no test for this eye condition that the mini suffered from called primary lens luxation and oh the joy and the celebration in the community when the test came through so that breeders could breed puppies that were definitely not going to go blind. I mean, that was a massive step, right? It was indeed, Anna. This has been the same across many breeds, but you use a good example because I, I, I had bull terriers. I had bull terriers since 1978. And much as I loved miniature bull terriers, I wouldn't have ever considered um, owning one or breeding them because there was always the chance they could go blind from this horrible condition called primary lens luxation. And apart from going blind, it's a very painful condition as well. Now, thankfully, a DNA test was developed, which means I can test my dogs and I can breed miniature bull terriers quite happily. And I can absolutely predict that those puppies will not get that condition because I just make use of those DNA tests. And that's that those D, these DNA tests um, are available for lots of different breeds for lots of different conditions. And in many ways, dog breeding is now is a, is a dog breeding is very exciting because we have a whole range of things that we can do to actually make sure that the health of our puppies is, is better than it's ever been. But of course, this does actually make dog breeding much more complicated because no longer can I say I just like the look of that dog and therefore I'm going to include it in my breeding program where when I have so much more info, information available about the health of dogs. So it's a, it's a great thing. DNA tests and health tests are a great thing, but they do make, mean that dog breeding has to become much more serious. And for the, for the average person uh, who just wants to, to produce a litter of puppies, it can be fraught with problems if you don't pay attention to all the facilities that are available. You mentioned um, earlier our Assure Breeder Scheme, and you're absolutely right. Our Kennel Club Assure Breeders, all the health tests that we actually recommend and, and recognize and are required they are mandatory for a short breeder. So if you're buying from a short breeder, you know that they have to have made use of those health testing screening schemes. Yeah, which is absolutely brilliant. Now, just to go a little on the controversial side, Bill, you know, all of this is brilliant. I hope people listening are now understanding a little better what the Kennel Club is all about. Um, unfortunately, I think in recent years, the Kennel Club 
has been blamed um, for flat face breeds, uh, for, you know, over fringing on a basset hound, for example, uh, being very low slung to the ground. Um, and those exaggeration of features that people believe are only done as beauty accessories, you know, so that they can prance around the show ring at Crufts. So I always look at the Kennel Club as being actually a bit like the AA or the RAC. You know, the, the AA advises you not to drink and drive, but, you know, surprisingly, a lot of people still do it. <laughs> so why is it that you recommend breeders to breed healthy bulldogs with um, features that make them, you know, fit for purpose to be a dog? Um, and the fact that some breeders, maybe the unscrupulous ones that are not Kennel Club assured, are still in, sometimes breeding them with the features that can cause the soft palate issues and so on. Well, that's a really good question because I think some of this does come from misunderstanding what the Kennel Club is. So if we go back to basics and why the Kennel Club was formed, the Kennel Club is effectively a register. So it's in the same way that um, what used to be called Somerset House and the Public Records Office now, um, that is a source where we record births and, and deaths and in, indeed marriages in terms of people. Uh, and the Kennel Club acts as a register for dogs. So uh, people who register with the Kennel Club know where their dogs come from and they, they have its history. So that's what the Kennel Club basically is. But, because, but we have now, because we've collected records for so long, we have the ability to actually research dogs and know a little bit about their, their history and where they come from and why they are formed. Now, if we come on to, you, you've, you've made, you've talked about some of the problems that, that some dogs have and are prone to. I should immediately say that we have recognized this. And if you look at a lot of the things that the Kennel Club do, and I go back to our breed standards, which is effectively the description of what a, a dog should look like. Whereas they may call for dogs to have certain, uh, certain features and they give a description of what a dog should look like, they all are fundamentally underpinned by a statement right at the beginning of, it, of the breed standard that says the dog must effectively be fit for purpose. It should be, it should be able to breathe freely, it should be able to walk freely, and it should effectively be healthy. No, I know. And, um, you know, an area as well that I, I love to see changing is the fact that some of our pedigrees uh, are facing extinction due to the fact that um, many first-time dog owners don't realize a that they exist and they are led down what i call the doodle route you know dogs like the english toy terrier even the miniature bull terrier, um, the celium terrier, the smooth coat fox terrier, which I adore. If I was going to have a fox terrier, Bill, I'd have the smooth, not the wired. But the wired is very popular at the moment. I trained one actually this week, um, but you never see a smooth fox terrier. You're, you're right. And I think you, you mentioned the um, increase in, in popularity in these the, the crossbreeds, the designer crossbreeds. I think we have we've currently registered 222 breeds with the kennel club um i i'm of the opinion that of those 222 breeds there is a breed out there that's absolutely right for you so the the necessity to cross them would seem um it's it's, it's, it's nonsensical to me i don't really understand why i'd want to to cross two dogs together which will bring with it an awful lot of unpredictability i want to know what i'm going to produce when i have puppies but you're you're right. We are we sh we share your concern about some of our older, well-established breeds falling away from popularity, 
and it's really interesting to to trace the popularity in in, in um, why breeds are popular. If I go back to the late fifties and early sixties, uh, the corgi was a particularly popular breed at that time. And now looking back, we think that the reason for that was largely because at that time the queen was pictured in the newspapers a lot with um, Prince Charles and Princess Anne playing with puppies, playing with their dogs. And so the breed became popular in the public eye. Now, of course, we have lots more influences and, and social media um, has an awful big influence on particularly young people about their choice of lifestyle. And breeds can become popular because they suddenly get featured um, in social media or on TV or in films, of course. And we suddenly will see a huge rise in popularity in a breed or type of dog simply because of what, what people see. It comes back to our, what our advice is always to, to new puppy, people who want to buy a puppy for the first time or want to buy a dog for the first time. You should really do your research because dogs can look awfully cute and people can make a choice on simply the appearance of the dog what it looks like when there's actually so much more to a dog than that and it's a shame that some of our more, more popular breeds and you mentioned the fox terrier a lot of the terrier breeds have sort of fallen into the, into this less popular character sorry a lot of these uh, terrier breeds have fallen away from popularity simply because people aren't so aware of them. They don't see them around. It doesn't occur to them that they may be the sort of dog that fits into their lifestyle. Yeah, and um, I guess, Bill, you know, let's chat a little bit about bull terriers. You said you've owned them since 1978. Now, some may say they're untrainable. They have moods. They're not the most biddable. Why has the bull terrier captured your heart? Well, and it's, it was very easy for me because I grew up with bull terriers. My mother and father had a bull terrier. And so it was the first dog that I ever grew up with. And, and as, a, as a child's companion, they are absolutely wonderful. They, they are, um, they're very resilient. They're not a dog that um, is frightened of children. They absolutely have an affinity with children. So my early memories of growing up with a bull terrier were, were really good. Now, if I go into my teenage years, there was a period of time I remember saying to my mother, because my friends would actually laugh at the appearance of my dog. My friends would say, oh, your dog looks like a pig. And I can't deny they do have some similarities to a pig. <laughs> um, but um, once you, and it comes down to this appearance again, their appearance often belies what they are like as characters. When, when I got married, we decided we wanted a dog and my wife did not want a bull terrier because of the way they looked. But of course, once she got to know its character and know what they are like as companions, um, there was no looking back. And we've now had, over our married life, we've probably owned around about 20 dogs. I, I've bred around about, um, I think about 20 or so litters, 20 or 30 litters over the years. So we are very much ingrained in the breed now. Um, we've moved on to the miniature bull terriers. As I get older, um, I want something that's perhaps a little bit smaller that I can actually pick up when it's naughty. And you can't do that with a, a 60 or 70 pound bull terrier. But they, they are, and it's, it's again, it's about this choice. These bull terriers are right for me. But I know that as a breeder, I spend half of my life putting people off a bull terrier because I feel that it's not the right dog for them. They require an awful lot of hard work. They require an awful lot of training. And as you rightly say, they are quite difficult. They're very challenging to train. Um, but they're not <laughs> for the faint-hearted at all. And so as a responsible breeder, and 
I'm no different than, than the responsible breeds in all the other breeds. We, we, we really tell people warts and all what these dogs are like and make sure that the people are prepared for what they take on because what's right for me may not be right for another person. Yeah, so, so true. I, I must admit, I do the same um, with Prudence. People say, oh, my God, this is my favorite breed. Look, you know, because of her appearance, actually, because they're they're very iconic looking. But I'll say, oh, my God, no, you know, they're a handful. They're, they're a handful. Very quickly then. So why is showing not just a beauty parade? And why is it a most excellent opportunity for dog training and socialization? Well, there's a, there's a number of aspects to it. In terms of beauty competition, um, it, that plays a part but it's really a confirmation competition it's actually it checks so many more things just rather than the actual um appearance physical appearance of the dog you know an experienced judge looks at all sorts of aspects of it uh, they look at the dogs they look at the way the dog is moved and it is judged to a breed standard so the breed standard is simply a physical picture a mental picture of what the do dog should look like what the breed should look like and it's the judge's interpretation of that but in terms of an activity, um, it is actually a really rewarding activity because it's an activity that it's something that you do with your dog. Dogs that go to dog shows love dog showing. Um, and there's no point in taking a dog to a show if it doesn't like it because it simply won't enjoy it. You won't enjoy it. And it certainly won't be successful. So dogs that actually go to shows do enjoy it. They also, there's, a, there's another um, offshoot of this in that I know that when my take, I take my dogs to a vet, the dogs are extremely well behaved because they are used to someone what we call going over the dog and when a judge examines a dog they will open the mouth to look at the teeth they'll feel the muscles and they'll feel the legs and they'll run their fingers uh, down their legs and through their toes etc and of course that's what a, what a vet will do and so when my dogs go to a, a vet they will be extremely calm and, and well behaved so that's really just an offshoot of dog showing but it's a great activity that's something that people can do with their dogs. There's lots of activities now available, but most people will have a pet dog in their home, but they don't actually do a lot of activities with that dog. We would actually say it's a really good idea to look at the activities that you can do with your dog and showing, of course, is just one of those, but they actually do help really make that bond between you and the dog. And um, they are, there's nothing quite like spending more time with your dog in a pursuit that you are, both actively involved with it can be extremely rewarding and it really does increase that bond between you and your dog. I couldn't agree more and just uh, to share a little secret with you Bill for the first time um, you never guess what I'm going to be doing with Prudence we're going to be having one-to-one -one lessons with Dave Wardell who owns the amazing uh, Finn fabulous Finn and uh, he's going to help me train Prudence to sniff out truffles well that that is fantastic and and there are there are so much there's lots of untapped things in, in dogs and i mentioned earlier that bull terriers you know are extremely independent and they are they are quite difficult dogs to train but if you can motivate them they are nothing <laughs> quite like them and if you can motivate prudence to sniff out truffles i can think of nothing that will be more rewarding and very financially rewarding perhaps well, that's it. That's it. This is the <laughs> this is perhaps the the, the long term goal. But it's just I think more to say is she's the first bull terrier to become a truffle hound. You know what I'm like. I like to fly the flag for uh, the breed, like I did with my Molly. Um, and on that note, Bill, I just want to say thank you so much for um, your time today. You're very welcome, and nice to talk to you.
so that's our show, Mr Binks. What did you think? Yes, I knew you'd agree with everything Bill was saying about choosing the right dog for your lifestyle, choosing the right breeder, and really understanding the massive commitment that owning a dog really is. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you did, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows. And while you're there, go on, give us a five-star review because it really will help other dog owners find us. Thanks also to my great producer, Mike Hansen at Pod People UK. For the latest on me, go to at Anna Webb Dogs and do check out The Kennel Club at The Kennel Club UK. What's that, Mr. Binks? Oh yes, there'll be another episode of A Dog's Life coming very soon. So bye for now.